0: exploring the natural world one podcast episode at a time this is for what it's earth hi all and thank you for joining me for another episode of for what it's earth by me marissa of the art of ecology and during this season nature enthusiasts foraging lovers and eco warriors can all discover more ways to make a positive difference for our planet, can explore the wonders of the great outdoors, and how we can be making those positive differences to the planet, to our bodies, to our families, all through local, native, and this episode, invasive plant species. Since this season focuses all on foraging for wild edibles, and fungi at some point. We'll also talk about what we can make with those delicious and nutritious little plants. As a disclaimer, do not ingest any plant matter without being 100% sure of its identification. Utilizing foraging field guides, having somebody really, really knowledgeable or an expert in the field with you while you hike can all be beneficial to identifying a plant correctly. Also, any medicinal or herbal information that I provide here in this podcast, it is just for educational purposes. It is not to be misconstrued as medical advice. If you have any, 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 any questions at all about think herbal drug interactions, about um certain issues that you may be having and how wild plants might alleviate symptoms things like that please talk to your doctor to your primary care physician this is just for education and to teach you about some of the incredible ways that the plants that we find outside can support and impact our body systems so with that out of the way This week we are taking an in-depth look at the autumn olive, which grows so prolifically around the country and at least where I live, is super laden with fruits this time of year. So, I am recording on Halloween. So those on the Patreon, you're getting this episode fresh right off the press. And so happy Halloween. And belated Halloween to those who are listening, um, not on Patreon, who are getting this episode a week later, but uh, yesterday, two days ago, my husband and I were out grocery shopping, driving around, and everywhere on the side of the road were autumn olive shrubs with so many, so many fruits on it. And I really had to restrain myself to not pull over and go harvest right away just because they were everywhere and way plentiful. But let's talk about what the autumn olive is. How do we identify it? The autumn olive, which is scientific name, Alegnis umbellata, a little weird, I know. It's a woody plant. So think like the spice bush that we talked about before. It has small, slightly rounded, but still linear. So moderately long, but rounded tips rather than pointed tips. And they're nowhere near as long as the spice bush. They might be as long as your thumb, maybe a little shorter. But these leaves are a pale green as compared to the spice bush would have really dark green leaves. These pale green leaves with silver undersides, which can make them really, really visible in a windy sort of area. As you see the wind comes through and it kind of makes the leaves shake a little bit, you can see the silvery, I mean, I'm not just talking gray, I mean metallicy silvery shimmer from the leaves. And that's on the underside. They produce in the late spring, they produce itty bitty, super, super tiny. They're not quite inconspicuous, but they're not really super exciting flowers. But these flowers are like a whitish yellow. And once pollinated, produce an insane number of fruits. They start off as a greenish brown with speckles. And then as they ripen, they plump up into a bright orangey red. And I I mean, like they are vibrant. You can see them as you're going down the road. Vibrant orange red that also has silver speckles. So if you see a berry or a droop, any type of fruit that looks similar but lacks those silver speckles, you are most likely not dealing with the autumn olive. A common lookalike is the amur honeysuckle, which does also produce orangey reddish, little, little tiny guys, little tiny fruits. However, they will completely lack any silver speckling. So watch out for that. Make sure you've got the silver speckles because honeysuckle is not edible. The flowers are, but not those berries or those fruits. These speckles actually give the autumn olive one of its common names, which is silverberry. Chances are though, no matter where you are in the United States, you have seen this plant before, even if it's just in a ditch along the highway. While it is originally native to Japan, it was brought over to the United States in the 1800s purely because it's beautiful. That silvery shimmer is really unique. Gorgeous, gorgeous ornamental plant. then in the early to mid 1900s, here in the United States, we had the Dust Bowl. And the Dust Bowl was out in the prairies in the Midwest to Western portion of the United States. And there was a lot of agriculture and turning those native prairies into cultivated farm areas, into these agricultural settings. And without those native plants, the soil was really, it it tanked in quality. And when the winds and the waters would come, all of that soil eroded. And eventually, the land just dried out, the plants couldn't withstand it. And the land itself became just a bowl of dust, nothing could grow there. So the importance of soil conservation really came to the forefront of many people's minds, starting in like the late early to mid 1900s, so think like 1940s to 1950s, soil conservation was something that people were like, whoa, now we really see why this is so important. We've seen it with the Dust Bowl out in the Western portion, so now in the Eastern portion of the United States, figuring out ways to conserve soil, to keep things healthy, to prevent erosion, was really kind of trendy, catching on. In order to prevent or at least mitigate and reduce the amount of erosion that was happening, especially here in the Eastern portion of United States where erosion really impacts water quality, the autumn olive was planted extensively in wetland areas, in fields, in roadsides, ditches. And it's, started out doing a great job at keeping soil in place. People were also super excited that it produced fruits that wildlife enjoyed. I mean, who doesn't love multi-purpose plantings, especially one that attracts birds and cute mammals, and yay, right? Makes us feel good. Uh-uh. Unfortunately, what wasn't known was how aggressively Autumn olive recedes and therefore spreads. It quickly, quickly became an invasive species. So now we're gonna jump and we're gonna talk about what the difference is between an invasive species, a non-native but naturalized species, and a native species are. In the past few episodes, when we talked about plants like goldenrod, spicebush, birch trees, We were talking about U.S. native plants. So now we're getting into the invasive ones. A native plant is one, you know, we talked about it before. They're plants that have existed in the region pre-settlers. They are uniquely adapted to the climate, to environmental conditions. So here in Pennsylvania, the plants that are natives, they are uniquely adapted to the fact that typically, climate change is throwing everything off, causing a whole mess. But typically, we get our snows in the winter that melts, resupplying the groundwater that we have in the spring. So we have a lot of water uh, replenished in the spring. Plants can grow, shoot up very quickly. And then in the late summer, we have our drought starting July through August. That's our drought time of year. It doesn't rain very much. Things get really dry, but the plants, they're uniquely adapted to it. They know to expect that. They understand the soil conditions and the soil chemistry of of this region have adapted to the numerous amount of clay particles and rocks in our soil. You can hear me and guest Alexandra Schmidt talk all about soil science in previous season of this podcast where we talk about Pennsylvania soils and the craziness found here. But the plants are uniquely adapted to all of that. They adapted to the fluctuation in seasons and temperatures and they get it. They know how to grow, they can withstand it. Unfortunately though, other plants can come in and ruin that where the native plants are displaced. Now this can be through numerous non-native species, but just because a plant is not native does not mean it is inherently bad or invasive. For example, dandelions. These are my favorite to talk about in terms of non-native naturalized plants. So many people think that they are natives or invasive. You're usually on one end of the pendulum there. Natives because they're everywhere and we don't necessarily think of them as being introduced or planted but actually they were. Or you may think that they're super invasive because they grow everywhere, right? We don't have to plant them. They are so many places. Dandelions though were introduced in the 1600s by those European settlers who came to this country. There were no dandelions and dandelion was a huge source of food and medicine. So they brought that over from Europe to utilize, planted it everywhere, and weirdly enough, it did really well here. Despite those incredible uses of food medicine, as well as benefits to ecosystem health, many people today try to eradicate them out of gardens, roadsides, lawns, things like that. Spoilers, though, we will talk about dandelions a little later on down the road during an entire episode dedicated to dandelion flowers and their root systems. So we we will go crazy with the dandelions, but I just want to use it as a brief example here. This plant was introduced, but it has great benefits to our ecosystem through soil conservation as well as through nutrient cycling. So really really great stuff provides food habitat but it doesn't outcompete our native plants invasive species though is different it is a non-native plant that has been introduced that causes great ecological harm well yes there are obvious benefits to the autumn olive such as their use in erosion control that's what we've really loved them for, right? The negative impacts outweigh the benefits. And unfortunately, in the conservation world, usually we are very reactionary as scientists rather than prevention-based. So instead of saying, hmm, let's really research, before we introduce something here, let's really research it and find out what it might do to the area. We're just like, nah, we'll plant it and we'll see what happens. And when bad things happen, we're like, well, that didn't go well. (laughs) These shrubby, woody plants, they grow so easily in almost any soil condition from riparian zones to fields to forest edges. And through the number of fruits that they produce, the The seed spread is prolific. And on top of all of that, they do something called allelopathy, which means that they can easily outgrow our U.S. native plants. Allelopathy is when a plant changes the soil chemistry to make it better or more ideal for them, for that exact species to survive. Other species with different genetic makeups They can't survive that change in soil chemistry and will die off, which makes more room for the invasive ones to spread. Huzzah! Ugh, no. This is a problem because the native plants provide very specific nutrients and resources to native wildlife. In the spring, now spring isn't when we're as, you know, concerned about autumn olive fruit seed dispersal. But this can kind of, this example could kind of give you a bigger picture or a more in-depth understanding of how everything impacts everything else. In the spring, before native trees have put out their big leaves, small understory flowers called spring ephemerals pop up or they should. These spring ephemerals are vital early season food resources for pollinators, freshly emerging insects, wildlife that's reawakening after a hibernation or after a period of dormancy. But unfortunately, the autumn olive, as well as many, many, many other invasive species, such as the Norway maple, Japanese honeysuckle, Oriental bittersweet, things like that. They grow extremely quickly and take advantage of that early spring sun and grow way faster than those spring ephemerals do, which now as they grow, shades them out, shades these spring ephemerals out. So now the spring ephemerals don't have the light that they require to grow, so they don't. As more and more of these invasive species crop up and displace natives, like those spring ephemerals, the wildlife lose out on ideal food, which can provide nutrients for them that aids in growth and for some insects, metamorphosis. For example, violets are the host plant of the native fritillary butterfly. And without those violets, they might go lay their eggs on something else. And we're like, oh, well, it's totally fine then. They found another plant to lay their eggs on. Yeah, but those violets provide the resources that allow metamorphosis to actually continue. Without those specific nutrients, the fritillary caterpillar can't really succeed with its metamorphosis process and will die off. So animals instead, if they can't find a way to adapt, they might move to a different suitable location. Again, we're like, yay, they moved. That's great, right? Eh. It's great that they're trying, but now that area that they have moved to is now going to be suffering from extreme rates of competition as new species flood an already probably saturated area. competition increases, and now we're just kind of moving species around and shifting them, creating new invasive species. When one portion of our ecosystem is impacted negatively, all portions are, and vice versa. When we make a positive difference in one area, we're impacting so many other facets of the natural world. Everything causes a huge domino effect. For invasive species, the presence of them reduces native plant presence, which then reduces wildlife biodiversity. The lack of biodiversity impacts both plants and animals, can ultimately reduce soil quality, which impacts water quality. And now we are back to the start, back to the Dust Bowl era, wondering How can we mitigate erosion? How can we mitigate water problems? Let's bring in new plants to handle this. And now we introduce another invasive species. (sighs) It is one huge, big, bad loop. So that's kind of depressing, right? Because we have a ton of invasive species in this area. How do we get rid of them, though? For the autumn olive... Things get a little tricky here, if it wasn't tricky already. Attempts at cutting this small tree or shrub down have proved ineffective. you remember last episode, uh, we're talking about plant growth hormones and proper pruning techniques and how pruning or cutting can actually stimulate further growth. Okay, so in order to get rid of the plant, you'd have to cut it down as far as possible, but this is just to make full removal more manageable. Then after cutting, you have to dig out the entire plant, making sure to get that entire root system. And I mean entire. If there are still roots remaining, the plant can still grow and produce new shoots, even if there's not leaves. Present to do photosynthesis is crazy. Sometimes it takes multiple attempts to fully get rid of the plant. Even burning the plant down doesn't fully get rid of it. And in fact, the plant kind of likes fire and fire can help the seeds to germinate. The autumn olive is also particularly quick at bouncing back after a fire, much quicker than our native species are. Again if you try to burn it down, even if it's a controlled burn, the native species will not pop back up as quickly as your invasives do. Fortunately though, the little seedlings are super easy to pull up. So if you have an autumn olive shrub or tree and you see all of these little seedlings starting to pop up in the spring or in the summer, you can pull those really quickly and prevent reseeding. You can also prevent reseeding by doing what I love to do the most, and that is eating the plant. I love using food as a way to mitigate invasive species spread. It's a good way to enjoy and appreciate the plant for the amazing things that it does do, while understanding that "Mm, this is just not the right spot for this particular plant. I appreciate you, but... We're gonna get rid of you, but I'm gonna enjoy the process. We're making the ecosystems a little bit healthier. When wildlife such as birds, that's the primary one, birds eat the fruit, they fly off and they're gonna poop those seeds out in these perfect little fertilizer packets to germinate somewhere else. When we eat the seeds though, for the most part, hopefully, we don't poop out in nature. We've got facilities for that. And the seeds then can't germinate or spread. This is also where I say, remember what we mentioned before about not taking more than 10 to 30% of plant matter in order to be ethical and sustainable foragers? Yeah, forget I said that, but only with invasive species. When it comes to them, the more you can harvest, the better. Take the whole plant, all the berries, all the fruits, all the seeds, all the nuts, all of it that you can find. However, we do not want to be accidental seed dispersers. When you are harvesting the fruits, seeds, nuts, what have you, from a plant, you want to be careful not to drop or bump any of those seeds off the plant that you're not going to notice or pick up. are obviously going to germinate and create new little plants, making invasive species removal really challenging. So one little tip or suggestion that I have to prevent this is when you come up to one of these shrubs, you're obviously going to be picking from what you can reach. You're not going to be climbing in. This plant can really create a thicket of of interwoven branches. It's hard to get in there and reach in. So we're getting the stuff out on the edges. Easy thing to do, you have your foraging bag, your harvest bag, your field backpack, whatever it is, a grocery bag with stuff in it, No, no. no. Put a sheet in there, then lay the sheet down underneath that edge area where you will be harvesting. Any dropped or bumped off fruits are gonna fall directly onto the sheet, which then you can really easily see and pick up or just kind of bundle your sheet up, take that home with you and you can use them. You want to harvest the fruits early as well, as soon as they ripen in order to reduce the amount of fruits that get eaten by birds and wildlife that are gonna go poop it out elsewhere. You're not taking away any valuable food resources for them, so don't worry about that, OK? There are many other native and naturalized plant species that they can utilize. And in fact, wildlife prefer their native food resources anyway. And when we encourage wildlife to eat native plants, we're encouraging the seed dispersal of those native plants. All around, that's a good thing. So. Now we have foraged, we've harvested our little fruits. How do we use them, and how are they good for us? First off, they're delicious. They are a bright, tangy flavor. I love it. They can be eaten raw, although little warning: there is a the moderately hard seed. You're not going to break a tooth on it, but they're they're kind of hard seed, which. You don't want to spit out onto the ground, right? If you're outside in nature picking them, eating them raw, spit them out, don't do that. Spit into a jar that you can take home and throw out. That way you're mitigating seed spread. So just a warning there about that seed. There's also something else to warn you about, and that's the the shock of a super speedy chemical reaction that takes place in your mouth. Once you get over that though, they're super enjoyable. Now the chemical reaction happens when the juices of the fruit come into contact with the enzymes and the cells in your mouth. These fruits are something called astringent. And what the word astringent means is that the cells are being tightened. When it happens in our mouth, these tight cells can't produce the saliva. So for a split second, your mouth becomes a desert when you eat this. It just dries you right up, sucks all the moisture out of your mouth. But again, it's a split second, little reaction that takes place. And astringent things aren't bad. It just is a momentary weird feeling. Once you get over that though, you're going to go back for more because they taste so good. This chemical reaction though, we can reduce by adding sugar. So many foragers will actually wait. They won't go out right as the fruits ripen and they'll wait a little bit until the first frost happens or the first like really, really cold night. And that's when you harvest the autumn olives as well as many other kind of autumn berries. Now, I I realize I haven't mentioned yet that autumn olives aren't actually olives. So if you're not an olive fan, don't worry. These taste like a fruit, a very bright, think like raspberry level of bright and tangy, um, but a unique flavor. So not actually olives. Now, these quick freezes that happen kind of late season, so... Again, it's Halloween today. We have already had really cold nights. They make the sugars in the fruit actually more bioavailable, which means that the level of astringency decreases. So eating them raw is a much more pleasant experience. However, again, if you don't want to wait and give birds and wildlife the opportunity to snag these seeds and disperse them before you, you could always turn the fruits into things like syrups, jellies, ice cream, pie fillings, really anything where you're adding a bunch of sugar. In fact, the automala fruit is super good for you. And while I often am talking about red plants and their anthocyanin pigment and how good for you that anthocyanin is, This time I get to talk about a different pigment, which is very exciting for me. You can tell I don't have much going on with my life that I get excited about pigments. I'm going to talk about a carotenoid. Typically, carotenoids produce an orangey color. It's where we get carrot, the word carrot, from. Think of how vibrant orange they are. But in many plants, they can present as a reddish orange. The lycopene pigment is a carotenoid that gives them a really bright reddishy orange sort of appearance. This is also found in watermelons and tomatoes. Lycopenes protect against numerous types of reproductive system cancers. So think cervical cancer, prostate cancer, and it is extremely high in both vitamin A and vitamin C. So this makes them also really great for boosting overall immune system function. I've talked about it before, when we eat seasonally and locally, we can, well, not that this is local per se, but when we're eating seasonally, we're eating things that are designed to help our bodies with what they need help with that time of year. Our immune systems are kind of slowing down for the winter. We're mammals. Many mammals hibernate or go into a period of dormancy. The immune system, digestive system, that's not as needed during a period of dormancy, but we're humans and we stay active the whole year, even though I would much prefer to hibernate for all of winter and wake up in, honestly, I'll wake up in June, that's fine. I'm, I'm a summer person, I like the heat, but, Moral of the story, we stay active, so we need things that are going to help our immune systems function to the best of their capabilities. Getting these things that boost our immune systems are excellent. Personally, my favorite way to eat them is either raw, I really like the taste, or by turning them into a syrup just because syrups are so versatile. You can add it to all sorts of things. You can add it to, Cocktails, which I will include a link of an autumn olive shot that I made, a recipe that I made. I have a YouTube video of that, so I'll include a link there. So we've got cocktails, lemonades, they're really great. And you can add a syrup to ice creams, homemade ice creams, homemade yogurts or you just buy a tub of plain yogurt and add your autumn olives in, really brightens it up. You can even add it to more savory foods like soups too. It's all good stuff. To make a syrup though, you are going to mush up the berries that you harvest or I shouldn't say berries, the fruits that you harvest in a pot of water, mush them up, put it on low to medium heat you don't want to boil them but you do want to heat it up enough that all of the juices and the oils can infuse into the water then you strain out the seeds and any excess pulp that you might not want while measuring the remaining liquid for every cup of autumn olive water that you've infused add one cup of sugar to create a syrup you're going to dissolve that sugar it will be ready to use. It'll be good if you make like a tiny bottle or I have the leave half cup to two cup mason jars. If you make one of those, that will last you about a month or it will stay good for about a month. The sugars can be very preservative. However, you do want to use it quickly. The faster you use it, the more of the nutrients are bioavailable for us to utilize. So for what it's earth, each person who can go out and forage for autumn olive fruits anytime between late September and early December is going to be preventing and mitigating the amount of invasive species that spread and germinate and crowd out local native plant species, and your ecosystem will thank you tremendously for it. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with the art of ecology. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please support, review, and continue to follow along for more foraging goodness for what its earth can be found on many podcast streaming platforms. For more eco tips and inspiration, you can check out my blog or find me on Instagram Facebook, and YouTube at The Art of Ecology. And with that, I'll see you next time on For What It's Earth.